0: Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about another book. Uh, and I'm always happy to discuss books because A, I get to read, which is something I love doing. And secondly, if a book is amazing and it's on someone who I have deep respect for, uh, I have an even better time. So today's book is going to be reading Sri Aurobindo. That was... Uh, co-authored edited and compiled together by gautam chikermani and <coughs> devdeep ganguli so guys welcome thank you thank namaskar you.
1: delighted to be back
0: all right so so devdeep this is your first time on the podcast uh, gautam has uh, been here before so the listeners, viewers of the podcast are kind of used to Gautam now, <laughs> so, but they don't know about you. So please, uh, if you could tell everybody a little bit about yourself too.
2: So my family has been associated with the Sri Aurobindo Ashram in Pondicherry for many years. I'm actually the fourth generation here in Pondicherry. Wow. And uh, I uh, my, my father was posted in a few different places, but at the age of eight, I finally came to study in the Ashram school in Pondicherry where uh, I did my schooling and my college here and thereafter I decided to continue to stay in Pondicherry and I began teaching first at the school level and uh, thereafter at the college where I myself studied. So I teach social and political philosophy of Sri to undergrad uh, students and I also teach ancient Indian history, art and culture and uh, I also volunteer. I help in one of the ashram departments, one of the administrative departments. So my life has been pretty much uh, in and around and, you know, centered around the ashram in Pondicherry.
0: So so, so as, the, as the adage goes, you're someone with skin in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pretty much. Yeah. So... Gautam, you were just showing uh, me before we started how in the background are the 36 volumes of Sri Aurobindo's work. And uh, the book itself is a culmination or a saranch or an essence of the 36 volumes. Wow. First of all, thank you very much for doing this for me because I want the viewers to see this. I mean, this is mind blowing. So this is the lifetime's work of uh, Sri Aurobindo? Yeah, this is the complete works of Sri Aurobindo. Wow. Wow. So so this is this is magnificent. Last book book was published in
2: 2019.
0: Magnificent. Magnificent. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this for me, guys. I'm so happy that you guys have done this because uh, you know, I don't, I think people don't realize the importance of uh, hard work and uh, the, you know, the kind of uh, effort that goes into, you know, maybe creating something like this. So maybe we can start with this, Gautam, first to you and then Devdeep, I actually want to go to both of you. So, you know, this, as, as people saw, that's a lot of work, you know, 36 volumes, is thousands of pages and then uh, cross-references, citations. You have to cross-reference those citations too when you go through and study a personality as diverse as Sri Aurobindo. So how does one decide, Gautam? And maybe both of you can answer this because maybe both of you might be coming from different perspectives. How does one decide what goes in, what does not go in? Hmm. Uh,
1: That is something we haven't really, uh, you know, we've left it to the authors. The idea happened uh, because the 150th birth anniversary of Sri Aurobindo, which is on 15th August in a few days, uh, was approaching. And I thought we should do something uh, around this and get people to know more about Sri Aurobindo in this uh, 150th birth uh, anniversary year and going forward. Now, uh, among the various ideas is, uh, you know, uh, what does Sri Auro... basically the biography of Sri Aurobindo has been written and it's a brilliant biography. That's, that job is over. Now, what do you, what is left for us is to analyze, read his um, complete works, the last of which was published in 2019. This in itself is an adventure by the editors uh, uh, at the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. Now, once the whole pack of all the 36 volumes behind us is ready, what to do next? So among the various themes that were coming, uh, one, so, you know, there are two ways you would know, Kushal, since you've studied philosophy, two ways that ideas come, one from within, one from the outside. This idea came to me from the outside. So uh, perhaps it was, um, I don't know, a, a series of circumstances or what that we need to put a book together. And then I thought, why don't we just, why why, why don't I uh, just read all the 36 volumes and give a familiarity to everybody uh, on on what Sri Aurobindo is, what his works are, uh, what the ideas that he has uh, created or taken forward look like. As I began to read the first one, I said, boss, this is beyond me. Uh, you, You know, even if I were to read even one book to completion, that itself is a great uh, journey uh, how am i going to finish 36 volumes uh, within one year it's it's not possible so i let i let my greed go away I, that's that you know you, you keep dropping uh, parts of your ego as you go forward in tapasya you, you, you must have known that in the indian tradition so my ego fell the moment i looked at these 36 volumes now what next so i said chalo let me talk to Devdi who's a scholar uh, out here in in the ashram and we worked together on several projects earlier and uh, asked him, Chalo, let's the two of us do it. And then the two of us also felt, no boss, even 18 volumes is not, is <laughs> too much. We can't manage it. And then with the idea broadened and then we felt, you know, to do complete justice, we need experts uh, of those who have studied the text, who have engaged with this particular ideas, because there is a breadth of writings that Sri Aurobindo has done. So, each person who was an expert, uh, we got him and her uh, to, uh, we requested them and uh, just for the information, for your information and for your readers, there is no money for any or either of the contributors or for the editors. The entire proceeds uh, from this book, uh, reading Sri Aurobindo, are going uh, to uh, the Sri Aurobindo ashram and therefore, uh, as a matter of marketing, I say you buy one. And gift ten.
0: Awesome, awesome. Devdeep, how about you? How how has your experience been? As as you've mentioned, you've been involved in the ashram. So over the years, obviously, you must have gone through a lot of these uh, readings and lectures yourself, right, at a personal level. So
2: in, in college, uh, my I, I initially started with mathematics and uh, you know a few other subjects, but then I gravitated towards philosophy quite early on. And I was very lucky because in the ashram college, we had some extraordinary uh, teachers, professors, and with them, my core interest became Shirobindo's integral yoga philosophy. And I was exposed at a pretty young age to a lot of his writings. And I can't claim to have read all the 36 volumes, but I have read, you know, uh, most of them. And uh, all of them I have definitely gone through in some form or the other. So it was a very intense and interesting experience. His, his, his life, his teachings, his writings, they're really close to my heart. When Gotham came with the project, I uh, you know we discussed it and as he just mentioned, we realized early on that this is something very big and it is beyond uh, us as individuals to start writing, introducing, commenting on all the volumes. And we spoke about how we can broaden the project to include others who have some expertise and knowledge. At the same time, we said, let's get a very diverse group. Let's not go only to academics. Let's not go only to uh, ashramites and people who have lived here. Because Srivindo is for everyone. He writes uh, in each of his volumes. He addresses different audiences. He writes for different age groups. He appeals to a very vast spectrum of people. So what we did is we um, got a mix of people living in Pondicherry, outside, Indians, foreigners, uh, men, women, uh, academics, -academics, non-academics, young people who have recently, like in their 20s, who have engaged with his writings, as well as people who have been studying and writing about Shirobindo for decades. We we created a very broad mix uh, because we also wanted to say that, look, Shorabindo, reading Shorabindo is for everyone at whatever stage or level in your journey you may be. And so we chose the contributors based on their knowledge, their acquaintance with the particular text. Uh, But we didn't necessarily go only to the known experts. We expanded and wanted to bring many more people. So basically a
1: mix of uh, uh, those who have studied it and those who are practitioners uh,
2: together. Yes, we have 19 other authors apart from, in addition to the two of us, there are 19
0: people. No, That's good to hear that, you know, you, don't, you do not restrict yourself to the practitioner's criteria, because I think that, that and it is quite evident in the book, uh, it creates a flavor. When it comes to the writing itself, the writing styles differ from, you know, the first chapter onwards, right down to the end. But now I want to talk about something. as A lot of people don't know. In fact, uh, you also did not know, Gautam, both of you did not know that, you know, Sri Aurobindo's philosophy is colleges in colleges. And of all the places, it, I had the pleasure of uh, having it as a subject of mine in IGNU, which was, uh, if people don't know, MPYE016. It is the philosophy of Sri Aurobindo. And I, and I clearly remember, and I want to narrate the story when I was studying for this, I wanted, you know, some, uh, I did not want to trust the IGNU course material blindly. And uh, I had read Sri Aurobindo on and off, but, you know, saal ho yaad nahi, so I had called Allo. Alopalko, I had called her and I had told her, ki, tell me what are the references, well, not only uh, books, but videos also. And she had been nice uh, and kind and she shared a lot of resource material with me and it helped me in my course. But w- what impressed me even at that time when I was studying this just for my master's in philosophy was Shri Albindo's idea of what an education system should be like for India and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as I was going through this, I was like, ye bande ne kab likha tha ye? You know, my initial response is that bande ne likha tha 100 years pehle, and we aaj bhi wo kar rahe That was my next response. So, so Gato, maybe we can start with this. Maybe we can talk about his views on education, and and I want to spend some time here. And Devdeep, again, you also have to come in. Like, uh, so can you share with everyone what was the basic philosophy when it came to Sri Aurobindo's view on how an education system should be like?
1: Yeah, so uh, Sri Aurobindo's system of education began and was part of his, na- his writings on nationalism. Uh, Indian education, he believed, ought to be a national education. Now, What is national education? Uh, it is about the country, the geography, the people, the civilization, all everything that we come, continue, we keep talking about. But that's not all. There are also spiritual principles that he propounded. And since we are talking about education a little more seriously, I would like to bring a spiritual collaborator, the mother, into the conversation. Together, uh, as you, you must have read earlier, the two are one, the consciousnesses are one. And to see one without the other is a, well, is, is a little incomplete. incomplete. Yeah. So uh, uh, when we put the mother and Sri Aravindra together, and which is now what I'm going to talk about, we come to a synthesized uh, nature of education, of what they aspired education to be, and what the Sri Aurobindo International Centre of Education in Pondicherry, where Devdi teaches, does or attempts to do. Let us not uh, yes. jump the gun because it's not easy. According to them, uh, very simple principles, and you know, uh, and I, I don't know why even the basic of them, and forget forget about the spiritual education which we will follow later, are being ignored by mainstream, by mainstream education across the world. Education is from within to outside, from near to far. So from the tree in your school, you study, begin to study biology, plant biology, move on to the grasslands, you you understand the various uh, grasses across the world. You look at the river flowing next to you, move on from Ganga to Jamuna to Rhine to Mississippi and so on, you understand river. So from near to far, from inside to outside. The first part of education, by the way, is physical education where hygiene, food, taking care of yourself, building muscles, running, etc. So basic. But now in schools, when I see in other schools, uh, what you have, oh, you have a a physical education period. uh, Twice a week, you will have physical education. That's not physical education. Physical education is a daily thing. The students here at this Ashram school, the Sri International Center of Education, which is known as the Ashram school. I have exercises, physical education for one and a half hours, all days, Sundays included. That is physical education. Then you move to mental education. Within mental education, we don't just talk about curriculums or fields. We talk about the mind behind them. For instance, today, uh, there could be several people who are IIT, IIM graduates. How many of them are really wanted? Your requirement today in society is directly proportional to the concentration you are able to bring to your work. Where is concentration being taught? Shouldn't this principle of within, which is that to be able to focus your mind, your your words, your entire being into a one problem, let us say quadratic equations and solving them, shouldn't that be part of our education? Likewise for vital education, understanding emotions, likewise for psychic and spiritual. Uh, So this entire five This is the philosophy of education upon which now you can place physics, chemistry, economics, political science, and so on and so forth. But the underlying somehow, which is so essentially the Indian ethos has been lost within India. I think it's time to reclaim all that. Uh, Devdeep is a teacher. He may be able to tell you the more practical aspects.
2: Yeah. I mean, the fundamental difference is that one view of education sees the child as a receptacle into which you have to pour everything. Where you have to teach the child this is what you should know in order to succeed in life. This looks at it completely from the reverse inverse perspective where it says the child or the individual already knows. How does it already know? How does he or she already know? Because in each individual is the key, the access to a greater reality to a self within to a consciousness, which is already all knowing, where we are, the Upanishads will tell you we are the absolute reality, even if we are not conscious of it. So the other perspective says, you do not have to teach, you you do not have to fill the child with information, you have to help to create an atmosphere where the child comes into contact with that source of knowledge within him, which is already all knowing. Now, of course, in practical terms, this does not mean that you do not teach. You must you must you, you have to have the exposure given to the child to the different subjects and languages, the basis, the mental instrument has been has to be developed. As Gautam just mentioned, each of these, the physical, the emotional, the mental, they all have to be helped to grow, support, and develop. But to always remember that the goal is to help the child to learn by themselves. The, you, you would have achieved your objective if the student says, I want to learn this. I have the necessary faculties in order to develop myself and learn what I want to learn. I will, I may use many different sources. I may go to a teacher, I may go to YouTube, I may go to a a mechanic who knows how to work with uh, their hands practically. But through it all, I am in charge, I'm driving the educational process for myself. And so this is one very fundamental difference and um, the stress on examination, the stress on grades and marks takes away from the essential thing. Because the essential thing is that you want to learn for the joy of learning. You want to learn to discover yourself and the world. You want to learn so that you become a complete being, not just somebody who knows a subject very well, but you become a funct- a functioning, uh, balanced harmonized content being in the world. So this is broadly the approach to education, which uh, Shirobindo and the mother pioneered and which we have been trying to experiment here in Pondicherry. And also I would say that these ideas are being received more and more. So there are similar experiments in education happening not just in India, but also abroad. And there is some inspiration that is being drawn In fact, I was happy to see recently the new the new education policy 2020, which actually tries to remove the barriers between subjects and streams, even though there is still no mention of a spiritual or or a psychic education that that has not yet come into the mainstream, so to say. But the new education policy certainly gives a lot of weightage to look at subjects in an unconventional way. So that previously we would say extracurricular activities, now we would say they're co-curricular activities. Uh, Someone can study a variety of things, giving equal weightage to them.
1: To make it uh, accessible to you, uh, look at why did you need to study philosophy at the age that you did? It is because after a long time you found out that this is what interests you, this is your proclivity. And you said, chalo, check it out, let me understand, let me get a grip of uh, uh, philosophy tomorrow you might want to uh, uh, go deeper and so on so uh, this at the school we begin very early i think at class uh, 11 level maybe a little maybe earlier, earlier maybe earlier yeah
2: to give choices and, <laughs> you know.
0: yeah i i am you know in fact my one of my biggest grouses in life is i know people it's a it's a habit of you know, mocking philosophy. But people don't realize that half of the things on life are downstream from philosophy because even when it comes to a lot of scientific uh, things, you know, they are inspired from a very philosophical perspective and that's when they, they flow downstream from. So... I am the biggest supporter of teaching philosophy in schools to children, especially after fifth grade, I believe. little bit is philosophy. And I might be a materialist at a personal level, but I am someone who's not an anti-religion materialist. Gotham knows me personally, so God, I don't need to convince Gotham about that. But in fact, I would be more than happy if kids are taught philosophy and metaphysics uh, religion is something that should be taught at school that even i understand but the point is philosophy that is an essence of religion and in india you know we don't have a very you know boxed way of teaching kids and i think the indian education system itself suffers from that problem where it carries the baggage of that uh that mindset where i believe uh take, Okay, let's let's take the bull by the horns then. You know, when it comes to Sri Aurobindo, Gautam, you mentioned nationalism. So now, what is Sri Aurobindo's nationalism here if we were to talk about it? I mean, I don't know where the spiritual ends and the nationalism starts. To be very honest, you just can't. You, If I was to ask someone after reading Sri Aurobindo to tell me, okay, tell me where his nationalism ends and where his spirituality starts. Can you show it to me? And they can't draw a line on the map and say, And when I was reading that, like the speech, you know, on uh, the nature of what India is and the Indian state should be, I think it's the Uttarpara speech, uh, if I remember yes. correctly. Right? Yeah, now, now that and again, why am I linking it to the larger discourses sometimes? we suffer from what i call i tried to call it in my one of my monologues on my podcast is abrahamic privilege the world is set by certain parameters and though i'm not saying they are good or bad that the, the, the discussion on whether they are valid invalid good or bad is a separate this is an academic way of looking at it what i'm trying to do so the abrahamic privilege sets the rules of the game now maybe nationalism for them or somebody in europe right It might be a completely different experience. It might emote certain emotions which has images of Hitler. And and I completely understand where they're coming from. But Sri Aurobindo's nationalism or the nationalism that is espoused (laughs) by Sri Aurobindo is very different. In fact, if we were to explain it to maybe somebody from that part of the world, we might not have to use the word nationalism. We can say maybe, you know, it's patriotism for you guys, what he he talks about. But but then how would they understand the spiritual point? So so can we maybe talk about this, this, this struggle that we have in setting our own categories then? I, I don't know. Maybe Devdeep, you can go for it first and then Gautam can also come in. No,
1: Devdeep is the right person. He wrote a chapter on nationalism. In my previous book, India 2030, please.
0: Yeah, I think you you kind of highlighted a
2: very important point. Because when India got its independence in 1947, it coincided with a very um, challenging period of human history. Because just a few years earlier, uh, Europe had gone through a tremendous crisis of existence because of uh, movements that were so-called nationalistic, but which had turned into fascism and Nazism and so on. So countries in Europe had, um, had undergone a tremendous uh, uh, crisis due to the fact that the same truth of identity was somehow twisted and turned into a perversion or a distortion. And so India gets its independence in '47 at a time when nationalism is suddenly a bad word. And so there is, and of course, then there is the entire problem in the context of India with partition and and the two different ideologies of how a nation should be constructed uh, or created and so on and so forth. And in the midst of all this, somehow there is a feeling as if we need to uh, not speak about our identity, our core identity too much so that it does not upset the cart. And that led to decades of a certain mindset, which was... Um, And I'm not even, at this point, I'm not even going into right-wrong. I'm just describing what happened. And this this led to decades of a certain worldview which said uh, we need to uh, not emphasize our identity. I want to bring in an idea here, which is very interesting. In a book called The Human Cycle, Shorabindu wrote this uh, book, where he looks at the psychology of history and social development. And there he says that we are entering an age, which which he refers to as the subjective age, where he says communities and nations are looking for their identity, for their self. This is a very different kind of of seeking than, say, uh, a few centuries before when people saw themselves as part of a kingdom or as part of an empire. Now, after the 1700s, 1800s, people were grouping together and seeing themselves as nations, and they were trying to understand what is their core identity. And so during during this period, the subjective, what he calls the subjective age, he says, there are two possibilities. One is uh, a subjectivism, which can lead to a true seeking or identity. And he what he calls false subjectivism. And he he in fact, um, uh, uh, predicts in a certain sense, what happened to Germany, uh, way before it actually took place. And so he says false subjectivism is when this seeking for identity, for the self, becomes something uh, which takes you down a path of darkness, of egoistic assertion, rather than true seeking for identity. And he uses an Upanishadic fable to explain it. In the Upanishads, there is a story of, you know, the Devas and the Asuras were called to say that a great knowledge will be given. if you have the patience, you will know who you truly are. And that gives you tremendous power. And the the Asura sees his reflection in the water and he says, Oh, uh, I am my physical self and I'm satisfied with that knowledge. And he leaves. And the Deva says, I am the physical self, but I'm not satisfied because if I cut my hand tomorrow or my limbs tomorrow, does that mean my self is reduced? But the self cannot be reduced. So then he patiently waits until step by step he's revealed the true knowledge of the self. All this to say that identity is at the core of Indian philosophy, of tradition, of our past. And it is also at the core of what we are discussing in terms of nationalism and what Sri brings into the picture, because what he says is we must rediscover ourselves at at the core of our being individually but also collectively, nationally, internationally. If all of us can find our rooted identity, then we can live not just for ourselves, but also with others in a diversity, which is based in unity.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, I think these are very valid points. And uh, Gautam, the struggle over here again is that how does one... I, I, I like i'm trying to be as precise as i can has there been a failure on on the side of india when it comes to explaining its point of view and its worldview to a larger audience or to even its own elites in that sense Uh, uh,
1: pertaining to nationalism
0: in particular In in anything? Anything related to Indian culture or native Indian culture? Anything?
1: Of course, it has been totally hijacked since the mid-60s onwards. And it remains hijacked. It remains cancelled. I'm happy to hear that Sri Aurobindo is back at IGNU. But among all the research that I looked for in the big universities, I couldn't find Sri Aurobindo. And uh, the fact, and I'm not saying Sri Aurobindo is one. I mean, I'm not sure how much Vivekananda this taught, except if, if one particular professor wants to do. so. How many papers have been written on Sri Aurobindo? How much of Sri Aurobindo's ideas we have uh, accepted or uh, embraced within uh, our, uh, our society conversations? I think Sri Aurobindo has been, uh, okay, let me not use the word cancelled, but he has, re- he has been uh, smothered. In, in the deluge uh, ignored. or ignored in the deluge of what uh, education has been defined largely by Western constructs, many of which are very valid, many of which are important, many of which are crucial. But I think this uh, the idea is to bridge, which Sri himself says, to bridge Western and Eastern uh, and Indian education, but, but without losing the soul of India. And I think India, in its education, in its expressions, in its conversations, is just an emulating, has become an emulating agency, particularly for the elite. If India lives today, it is in the non-elites. It is in the small towns. It is in the poorer strata. India, the the, the, the fake narratives that are being drawn out, are, are they don't belong to India very often. They are very strange. Like you just discussed nationalism. Nationalism and is being equated with fascism. An entire political party that has national in its uh, name, is uh, discarding nationalism. Now, Come on, where, what's going on here? Just <laughs> calm down, step back, and if you have nothing to do, read Sri Aurobindo, get an understanding of the, the philosophical precepts, the principles upon which our great civilization has sustained for so long. And then talk. Uh, and now I think this nationalism, this indian this Bharatiya is now rising, and the elite and that small group of control, that they had is finishing. So you, you can see the fissures coming out in the open in absolutely silly and stupid statements, uh, which are pre- very anti-Indian as in not anti-India uh, as in physically, but what is not the core of anti- india we are talking about liberalism. What is more liberal than Sanatan Dharma boss? I mean, you, you, you know that you, you have studied philosophy. What is more liberal than Hinduism Sanatan Dharma? There are no boundaries. These are the aspects that Sri Aurobindo has written in uh, across volumes and not, not just one volume, across volumes and which I, I think today are yearning for an expression. Our book tries to do that. But finally, it will be it will have to be taken up by what is known as the elite
0: or the elite will have to
1: shift and give way for a, a new rising
0: India. You know, what I loved about Sri Aurobindo's work is that he never fell for the what is called the classical straw man of just because something is western, it needs to be discarded. I'm glad you brought that up, Gotham. He embraced the West, he soaked it in, he learned from them, he celebrated them. He's like, karte hai, inse bhi and at the same time, what I loved about Sri Aurobindo's works is he's very comfortable, he knew he is. style. Hai whether it's Sri Aurobindo, whether it's Swami Vivekananda, and whether it's the line of great thinkers in India, the one thing Indians could learn from them, and when I say this is because a significant population that, and this there is this trend nowadays on both sides. I'll give you an anecdote. Why did Vipassana have to become mindfulness? Why did Yoga Nidra have to become lucid dreaming? There is a reason for that is because the person digesting that thinks that if I use those names and by the way, this was uh, fascinating as Joe Rogan, the biggest podcast in the world recently had this guy and he used the word yoganidra, which was, you know, I was like, anyway, he was a regular white guy doing his thing in America. He's a scholar. He does his own thing and he was talking about it. And then he said, I could not call it that because people might think it's in the American slang, woo-woo. He used the word, it's woo He's like, I'm using yoga nidra. And I am intellectually honest enough to tell you it is yoga nidra. But I call it something else in front of my own people, unfortunately, because they think it's woo. And at the same time, you have an extreme reaction to that on what I loosely call our side, not that I'm on that side or you are, but, and the refusal of that side to accept anything Western. Oh, this is a Western construct. That is a Western construct. You know, it's like, I I actually mock that everything is a Western construct, including you yourself. You know, it, it, I don't understand where the Western construct starts and where it ends. It, 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 it's the convenience on both sides. And it's only stems from a one side having a superiority complex and not willing to accept that good ideas can come from other cultures and the other side suffering from a very weird supremacist yet inferiority complex, yet inferiority. And the inferiority complex is tried to be hidden by this innate supremacism by rejecting everything. And I wish, you know, there is we and and Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo is that beautiful way we could learn of taking from the West while being Eastern and being comfortable with it and and i was so happy that you guys you know in this book tries to show the essence of that that he he's so comfortable ha bhai hamara to nationalism aisa hi hai bhai ha hum to hai nationalist abhi problem hai theek hai ja baith ja tu kone mein kidhar tere ko baithna hai tu baith ja main to change karne wala <laughs> mera word tere liye to convince you i am not going to change my word this is you know this is like abhi our swastika is so old अभी भाई हिटलर ने उसका कुछ उसका भाई बंद दिखने वाला कोई सिंबल ऐसा तेढ़ा सा हैकेनक्रॉइस उसको करके सत्यनाश कर दिया तो हम दे हमारा स्वास्तिक छोड़ दें hamari hamari some words which are considered bad in some other western language are all words of hindi or any indian language for that matter a few years ago there was a city called lesbos which wanted to change its name because
1: in their language, it meant something else and what it had become a, a, a laughing stock in the English language. I mean, so I think these aside, what, what you are talking about and what we are trying to show is that Sri Aurobindo had the ability and he to go into the depths of the knowledge. He didn't yeah. care uh, whether it's Eastern or Western English or Greek or Latin. Yes. These are all languages that he was very comfortable and conversant with.
0: And he was a master in so many languages. That is so fascinating. <laughs>
1: So, uh, I think that essence, he was, he had this power, the force uh, the, to capture, to go, reach the essence of knowledge, the essence of actions, the essence of truths and then give it to us, yeah. uh, uh, Articulate it within, uh, in English.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, Kushalji, there is a very nice series of uh, essays called the Renaissance in India, which he wrote in the, uh, nearing the 1920s and uh, in, in that he says something very interesting. That when we want a renaissance to take place here, obviously it is not a repeat in Western terms of a renaissance. We do not want a renaissance where we reject religion because all of that may have been relevant and uh, useful in the Western context. But he says a renaissance in India has to be along lines which are unique to our nature and our culture. And so he stresses, as I rightly, you know, you mentioned it, you expressed it very well. To be able to be comfortable with oneself, to rediscover oneself, to have the courage to say, look, these forms of the past are no longer relevant, we need forms which are uh, relevant to our times, to learn from the West where we need to learn, uh, to assimilate rather than simply adapt, to assimilate in the measure that it becomes part of us as our own way. For example, our political system, where, you know, we are still, I, I think, we would all you know, say that it is not yet reached an ideal stage. We are still figuring out what is an ideal political system that works for us. So w- what is an Indian political system? There are a series of chapters he wrote on Indian polity, uh, which are remarkable, where he looks at, the, say, for example, the concept of democracy. We associate it only with Greece. But he says the Indian republics during the Mahajanapada period, they were democratic in, a, in, in, in their own sense of the term. They may not have used the same words or the same system, but they were democratic in spirit and in essence. So he constantly challenges us to rethink what we understand by Indian thought and culture,
0: what we, how we can adapt all of that to the modern context. You know, for me, these things matter so much is through my own life's journey, where I started off as an angry Dawkinian atheist. And then how I realized that that was just not me. I mean, why am I mad, you know, and from my journey of being an anti-religion atheist in a very Dawkinian way to becoming a Charvak who just not only is not anti-religion, I I look at the Murti in a different way, maybe then probably say a devout, you know, Astic would. And that's fine. Now I in New Jersey. I had a Swami Narayan Mandir. I had a prayer in the temple. I had a mouth. I had a prayer in the temple. Maybe the Swami Ji who knew I was who I am, they were also confused. What's happening? What's happening? But Swami Ji, you should be the most comfortable. You know, our style is different. Our culture is And maybe it, through my own journey, I'm 41 now, it took me the last 10-12 years to be comfortable in who I am. This is my disbelief. My disbelief And I am not here to get any certificate of approval Stamped, certified classical atheist from Richard Dawkins school of you know so and so, or brother, I don't seek their approval anymore. In fact, you know, Gotham and I were having a dinner one day. I told Gotham and uh, and Gotham ne. Abhi, Gotham is holding me for that, so I don't know if I will ever live up to his, uh, his thing. his ne bola tha ko is par kitab Pata nahi, ki nahi Magar I did say ki title. to Gotham ne why I am not an atheist. <laughs> so 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 i had to you know share that story with uh people but another thing that should out and you know i want to read this from the book this is from the bande matram political writings and speeches 1890 to 1908 where you guys write sri Aurobindo's editorials and articles in bande matram which he wrote almost daily between 1907 and 1908 are a comprehensive indicator and schema of his early political activism, its trajectory and thinking. They provide the reader with an insight into the nationalist political discourse of the era and also the evolution of the nationalist movement, especially of the early phase, often referred to as the pre-Gandhian phase. This was a time of political developments that laid the foundations on which the nationalist movement would later be broadened. Can we talk a little bit about the history of this time? And this self reliance movement, mein bhi unka, uh, tha, honestly, got a lot of Yeah,
1: so this is a chapter written by Anirban Ganguly. Uh, and uh, these are his writings. Uh, if, if you go to the primary writings, they are almost like a day to day editorial of the goings on that are happening. The, they, are criti- they are critiques of various policies and, and so on. But to me, uh, uh, and I don't know how whether you, you see it there, uh, uh, Devdeep, to me, uh, each of his editorials, howsoever sharp, howsoever critical, howsoever focused on a particular narrow policy or, or of an action of a particular person they be, underlined, I think he was developing his spiritual writings there. The Bande Matram is a revolutionary, it's an inspiring piece uh, piece of literature, where uh, the underlying uh, uh, Sri Aurobindo was coming out slowly. Uh, Bande Matram was followed by uh, Karma Yogin. and where Karma Yogin, you can see the evolution, what he began in Bande Matram, he climaxed in Karma Yogin before moving on to full-time spiritual writing, but all through the, the way his nationalism developed, the, the way he critiqued policies, the way he saw uh, the, for, the Purana Swaraj, uh, the, the, that was a Bandai Mataram uh, article, uh, that complete freedom and no less. And uh, I, he, he was the first to say so, and then others followed. So these tiny seeds, uh, he seeded the freedom movement with all these ideas that later on became uh, larger. Uh, he, the i think it led to a several freedom fighters taking note uh, of the not the precise critique but the essence of nationalism was being created in this uh, in this set of writings
2: in bandematra so sir, sir a little bit about his uh, active role in the freedom struggle because i think it has not been sufficiently recognized honestly. yes so, you know, he had his entire early education in England because his father was an Anglophile. He sent him off along with the brothers to England. So he's right from you know very early age. He was in England. He had his schooling there. He went to Cambridge. His father wanted him to join the Indian Civil Service. And he passed the, uh, you know, the classical tripos, Greek, Latin. He learned those languages and he passed the Indian Civil Service exam. But he disqualified himself in the horse riding test. Because he said, I do not want to join the Indian civil service. That was the last test, house riding. He did not go. He was given a second chance. Again, he did not go. So by virtue of that, he was disqualified. Instead, he joined the service of the Maharaja of Baroda. The Gaikwad was visiting London at that time. They had an interview somehow. And he decided to join at a much lower pay. He said, I would rather work for the Maharaja than join the British service. So he comes to Baroda, uh, uh, at uh, you know in 1893 and he, almost immediately uh, one of his cambridge classmates uh, was had started a magazine called indu prakash and almost immediately he started writing articles strongly critical of the congress of those times uh, where they were still uh, governed by this idea that you need to be comp- you have to compromise we, we we must ask for certain rights not that we demand those rights, not that we fight for those rights, but you need to work with the British for those rights. So he said this is a, this is like a one-eyed uh, king leading the kingdom of the blind. Uh, this is not the way to do it. But he was, uh, you know, he was told not to write such strong articles because the publisher came under threat. So he kind of withdrew and he lost interest. Uh, the name of those articles is New Lamps for Old. And during his Baroda period, plunged into a deep discovery of Indian thought and culture. He learned Sanskrit, learned Bengali, he started reading the Upanishads, he started translating some of these texts, and he went deep into his, because he did not know any of these languages, he went deep into his own culture and roots and rediscovered them and, and realized them in a certain sense. In this, at the same time, while he was in Baroda, he got in touch with secret revolutionary groups that had started forming And gradually, he was more and more involved in these uh, various activities until a very significant date is 1905, when the partition of Bengal takes place. The British partition Bengal, and that leads to an outcry of, of, you know, anger. And Sri leaves Baroda, he moves to Calcutta. And in the four years, 1906, he moves to Calcutta. And 1910, he leaves Bengal. Four years that he was actively involved in the front and before that a few years he was already working from behind that is the time when the bande Matram articles come out and he is proposing r- radical change he is wanting the british to go out he's saying you do not have any business to continue ruling us you have no right to remain here please leave in i mean in as many in as many words but in beautifully worded editorials that gautam just mentioned and what is interesting is that he did not shy away from um, organizing behind the scenes uh, a violent revolution because he felt you have to fight for your rights. It is not going to be given to you if you beg for it. And so though he was not himself directly involved in any of the violence, but his his brother, for example, Barin Ghosh was, was leading that, that group. And in the Congress, along with Tilak, the Lokmanya Tilak, he began to manoeuvre so that ultimately the Congress in 1907, it split into two, the moderates and the nationalists. And uh, you mentioned something interesting. Many of the ideas which were later taken up by Gandhiji, like passive resistance. Exactly. Uh, I
0: wanted you to talk about it.
2: Yes. Uh, the, the idea of uh, of resisting authority in any form. The idea of, uh, of self-reliance, of boycotting British goods and buying only one's own products and so on, were actually initiated in that period between 1906 and 1910. It was only later that they were developed and Gandhiji had a had a more you know, national appeal and he was able to you know, use them in different ways. But he writes, Shorabindo writes about passive resistance, boycott, self-reliance in those pages. And as Gautam mentioned, those seeds grew into very powerful movements later on. When he leaves the political movement in 1910 to move to Pondicherry, you know, a lot sort of people say, oh, did he just leave and go away? Did he run away from the political field? And in fact, for Shrobindo, it was very clear that the work that he had to do had been done. Till him, till though, there was this whole approach where we have to work with the British. We have to somehow accommodate and get some rights. Shravindo was the one who said, no, enough is enough. We want independence. The, that statement became established in the consciousness of people. And he was certain. Even in 19 early 1920s, he told he had told someone that freedom of India is guaranteed. It is coming. When, how, all of that needs to be worked out. But it is it is certainly coming. So he had already a clarity that that part of his work was over, and that his focus had to shift to something much larger which included India, but also which included a greater, more than political action.
0: Yeah. I, And, you know, I, I have to read out a few excerpts here from the book. Where One of them is you guys talk about Shirobindo's vision of a new nationalism may be understood more deeply from an unpublished but seminal essay, The Bourgeois and the Samurai. This is 1906 and 1907. Uh, you guys clarify whether intended to be published in Bande Matram or not, we will never know. And uh, he calls for the democratization of the nationalist movement for making it inclusive. Uh, uh, and the other bit is that, you know, uh, that stood out to me was here. You talk about the passage from a speech titled The Present Situation Delivered in Bombay on 19 January 1908. At a time when the British government was coming down heavily on the revolutionary movement, this I want to read. So you guys quote him, you say, you call yourself nationalists. What is nationalism? Nationalism is not a mere political program. Nationalism is a religion that has come from God. Nationalism is a creed in which you shall have to live. Let no man dare to call himself a nationalist if he does so merely with a sort of intellectual pride. You must remember that you are the instrument of God for the salvation of your own country. You must live as the instruments of God. By what strength are we in Bengal able to survive? Nationalism has not been crushed. Nationalism is not going to be crushed. Nationalism survives in the strength of God and it is not possible to crush it. Whatever weapons are brought against it nationalism is immortal nationalism cannot die because it is no uh, because it is no human being it is god who is working in bengal god cannot be killed god cannot be sent to jail i think this if somebody realized you know a lot of times people ask this question what is a civilizational state gautam this is a civilizational state you know people don't understand like uh, which is why I had tweeted. Basically, क्यों? parallelly so, I it's a I'm not book what I'm So, you know, when I was going through it and I was like, then I felt like what Indian civilizational state? What is a civilizational state? India was just different princely states which were gobbled together by Sardar Vallabhai Patel with the aid of VP Menon. You know, that's what they say. But have they read Aurobindo? Have they read Vivekananda? Have they read all these people at different times of Indian history? Kautilya, uh, Adi Shankara, you know, this this continuous strand of thought where they attach the land in different ways to the spiritual thoughts of the land. And this is the civilizational state Or, or maybe I'm getting it completely wrong.
2: No, I think you are absolutely on track. Uh, that is very much what Srivildo himself would have... Uh,
1: in fact, later on in uh, Karma Yogin, in the Uttar Para speech, the last paragraph of that speech, he, defined, he redefines... Uh, sanatana of,
2: Dharma and Nationalism.
1: And uh, Nationalism is Sanatana Dharma. Uh, earlier, I would say that Nationalism is... Uh, you know, it's very well articulated. But... Can, can I read this?
0: Uh, I think he says, "I say no longer that nationalism is a creed, a religion, a faith. I That's say one. that it is the Sanatan Dharma for, for for which for us is national uh, nationalism. This Hindu nation was born with the Sanatan Dharma, with it moves and with it grows. When when the Sanatan Dharma declines, then the nation declines. And if the Sanatan Dharma were capable of perishing with the Sanatan Dharma, it would perish. The Sanatan Dharma that is nationalism." Yes. I highlighted it specifically, it it just stood out to me.
1: This is what I was talking about when I mentioned that the political writings, the critiques, the day-to-day discourse being taken at a spiritual level. This is exactly what I meant. In fact, Bhavani Bhavani Mandir, there's a pamphlet called Bhavani Mandir uh, in Bengali writings, uh, which has been translated. That's another uh, hair-raising… I think
2: it's in Pandematram. Matram. Bandhamatra. Yeah. In Matram,
1: there is this uh, beautiful uh, pamphlet that again goes into the why we need to build a temple for Shakti, why India needs Shakti, why we need to. Uh, we keep talking about great things, but our the, we fail in our Shakti. Very Very similar to Vivekananda's uh, 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 and strength. His speech on thought, strength Seven and of mind. Yeah. Mm. So his entire nationalism, his entire political writings were. Underlined by a spiritual, and spiritual doesn't mean meditation. Spiritual means all this that we are
0: talking about. Yep, yep. I, I, I totally, uh, totally get it. And you know, for me, this is the quintessential debate of the Indian, Indian landmass for the next decade or so, or maybe another two, three decades. And it's going to be is India. How we are told just different countries gobble together? Or is India a civilizational state? That is going to be the quintessential debate for us going forward. And uh, I guess the onus is on the people who believe India is a civilizational state. I have never hidden it. I openly believe India is a civilizational state, including materialists like me who are part of the civilizational story. I call myself a part of that civilizational state. And on the other hand, will be this, uh, you know, nearest is the right word. A nearest way of looking at how life and existence is. And and what ties us is like, look at the crisis. Like, I right now sitting in North America, now it's been almost six weeks now, and I've been observing this society. This society is amazing. I love it, by the way. It has a crisis of meaning. There is a crisis of meaning here. So they are looking for what binds them, and apparently they have found victimhood binds them. Everybody is a victim here. Imagine being tied by victimhood. That is the worst thing to be tied by. cumulative victims. Victim, victim killing. And everybody wants to enter that. What kind of a society they want to build, I don't know. But I definitely don't want this nonsense. I mean, is there victimhood? Yes. And the Indian state in 1947, through its Constituent Assembly debates, made sure it acknowledged those victims and it's trying its best to do something about it. But at the same time, the Indian state should also showcase a positive outlook, right? What is, what ties, like what ties me with somebody else? What is that grand narrative? So, you know, Devdeep, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I sincerely hope people read Sri Aurobindo. That's what I can say.
2: Actually, uh, that that was really the endeavor of our book, to basically say that look, here is somebody who has to be read, and everyone has their own uh, opening on Shrivendra. Some are drawn to philosophy; they might like to read the Life Divine. Some are drawn to his writings on Indian culture and and uh, on Hinduism and Sanatana Dharma and so on. They can read you know, Renaissance in Indian culture and other essays. Some are drawn to poetry, or some are drawn to the practice of yoga. How does one how does one discover oneself? What is the way towards discovering oneself? How does one practice uh, a a yoga of transformation? So there is such a wealth of material available. So I am absolutely, you know, I fully agree with what you're saying, that he has to be read, he has to be uh, understood, he has to be uh, ingrained in oneself.
0: Yep. Uh, And, and, you know, before we wrap today's discussion up, because, you know, we're touching the hour mark, uh, Gautam, if I was to ask you at at an individual level, and you can choose to avoid this question if it's too personal, but what what is the one thing that has hit you in your personal leading? And Devdeep, I'm going to ask you the same question because... uh, And you can choose to avoid it. But I mean, I'll tell you for me what touched me whenever I have read uh, Sri Aurobindo. And maybe that reflects on my podcast discussion also. His understanding of nationalism and you know, the way he understands the civilization state and his vision for education in India really touched me at an individual level as a person. But what about you, Gautam, and Devdi, both of you? So Gautam, first you. So that could be my last, you know, closing salvo for our podcast.
1: Okay, so uh, it's a very difficult question to uh, answer uh, in a minute or five minutes. I uh, There are several speeches of his that have uh, moved me. Uh, for instance, uh, the Uttarpara speech, or his essay on uh, uh, the Samurai, or the uh, the Samurai and the bourgeois. Uh, The uh, there is a small chapter in uh, Essays in Philosophy and Yoga called the, the Strength of Stillness. These are little things that remain with me. The Mother is a tiny book that I always carry with me. It's there in my bag right now. It's there in my jacket, wherever I go. Uh, These are things, but how it has impacted me. So one, I read Sri Aurobindo every day. Two, I can see that uh, I'm a writer uh, and my writings have changed over the last 10 or 12 years. I can see my writings change and there's a lot of influence of Sri Aurobindo in my writings i try to go to the substance of what is being discussed, what i write about rather than just look at the physical uh, uh, outer uh, discussion so i think that's that would be common for many people but for me it's a big leap and, and that, that is the other thing and finally i think uh, i'm far more comfortable and content with myself that knowing that uh, in fact that i think maybe we, can, we should we ought to have a another discussion on this which is the philosophical and spiritual works that uh, we have somehow not been able to touch in this discussion, particularly synthesis of yoga or life divine or the way he guided so many people through the letters on yoga, the the scriptural writings on uh, the Vedas, the Upanishads and so on. So uh, you you read the book later on, maybe engage with the primary texts, you will realize that there is a, a lot of spiritual writing that he has done. So far in this discussion, we have uh, focused on the, the education on nationalism on the outer domains once you go deeper you will realize how he has been able to integrate outer and inner uh, uh, surface and deep philosophical and material all together he has been able to synthesize all of them into uh, what he calls the integral yoga uh, and i and i i, I think one last point which I want to make is that when you read Sri Aurobindo there is, you have to read it with a hermeneutics of respect, your hermeneutics of faith and when you do that you get the real essence of Sri Aurobindo, you find a presence there um, and that presence heals you, it carries you, it, it, it holds you, it, it helps you grow. Uh, when you are groping in the dark it gives you steps on which to walk on and that I think window um uh, the, the sage of the future, the supramental sage of the future.
0: Devdeep.
2: For me, the first work of his that really touched me uh, was his commentaries on the Upanishads so i was uh, 17 or 18 as i mentioned in college and we were very lucky here that we had that exposure not only to sanskrit as a language but also to uh, the various writings of shurbindu and i remember reading his commentaries on the isha upanishad the isha is a very small text it's just 18 uh, you know 18 uh, verses and shurbindu has written hundreds of pages on commentary on the isha of course they are uh, different drafts And some many of them are unpublished drafts, but absolutely fascinating. And one of the commentaries that he wrote was in the form of a dialogue between a student and a teacher, like a guru shishya. But the guru and the shishya are both modern. So he uses examples from politics, from the French Revolution, from uh, literature, English literature even,
0: to illustrate
2: what the Ishopanishad is trying to convey. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And that, of course, led me deeper into uh, his writings on the Vedas, his writings on Kena and other Upanishads, and eventually to his own metaphysical sort of magnum opus, which is the life divine. And that was very powerful for a number of reasons. One is to to realize that, look, I am part of a culture where this seeking for the self for identity has been going on for thousands of years. You realize, oh my God, this is incomparable. There is no other culture or tradition which has this continuity where even today in the 21st century, I can sit and read a text which was written maybe three or four thousand years ago and which is so contemporary. We even today, we are looking for ourselves. We are seeking for ourselves, whether as individuals or as a nation and to have A text which is part of my tradition and which speaks to me through the ages. I I felt it very, very powerfully as a a gift and a privilege. And I was very grateful that we have Shrogando who is able to bring out the essence of that meaning and convey it in a way that I can understand and I can make sense of. And I want to bring in another idea here, which is what I also found really admirable in his commentaries is that. Shorabindu is fearless in his interpretation of the, of the ancient texts. He has a lot of respect for old and past interpretations. He has, a, he has respect for uh, you know the traditional interpretation. But if he disagrees, he will state it without fear or without any sense of favor. He will explicitly say, look, I do not agree with this interpretation. This is what I see in it. And I admire uh, the way that he was able to bring out A different perspective in these texts which we may not always find in other commentaries or interpretations and this perspective which if i can summarize in one sentence is basically one which says that spirituality in the indian context which we seem to have forgotten for a long time is not something which has to be done in isolation from life away in in retirement in the cave or the mountain that can be a stage It can be good for some people. It might be necessary for some people. But ultimately he would say if you read the Upanishads, if you read the Vedas they are all speaking about a spiritual realization which embraces life. Which tries to change which gives value and meaning to life. It is not all an illusion which you have to run away from or disappear. It is something which takes up existence as it is, sees it it as it is and attempts to transform it. So This aspect of Shirobindo's Teaching and writing, it flows naturally from the Ishopanishad into his own book, The Life Divine. And uh, that is the text that kind of was my entry into Shobindo's works.
1: Awesome, awesome. I, so feel, jealous, I feel jealous of uh, Devdeep because at a very young age in the school, he got exposed to Shobindo while, while I had to, I had to uh, waste 35 years before I got the first book of Shobindo. And I was not taught in school. I was not taught in college. I didn't know about. I used to drive on Shiro Marg, Mark. little knowing what Shiro Aurobindo was. Uh, uh, leave alone a philosopher or a spiritual person. Leave not even as a freedom fighter. So uh, yeah. I somehow feel sometimes very envious yeah. <laughs> of uh, Devdi that he started early. But okay, I'm catching up now. But yeah. what he wants to articulate in, what, in the last part is, is there in four beautiful words. All life is yoga.
0: Hmm. I agree. You know what? Uh, it has been an absolute uh, joy to speak with both of you. I, I first of all, I want to thank and congratulate both of you for coming up with this great book. I think this could be a great starter and an entry point for a lot of people who want to do a deep dive into certain aspects of Sri Aurobindo's life, Sri Aurobindo's thoughts. So, uh, and and I, Gautam, you know me. me. I sincerely mean this. So I actually want to say thank you for writing this book. I I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. As someone who has read a little bit of Sri Aurobindo, I can't say I've read all the 36 volumes, but I have dabbled in a few. I I tried to as part of my education and my own journey. So I I thoroughly enjoyed and I want to congratulate both of you for this wonderful, uh, you know, book and thank you. Thank you for the conversation.
2: Thank you.
0: Guys, usually I wrap a podcast by uh, just saying Tata. But now, I want two excerpts two excerpts this book. So, you know, in, there is a particular uh, point in the book where I'm just reading. Shri Aurobindo answered this question in Indian culture and external influence by affirming the growth implies a movement of self-development from within, but equally the capacity to receive impact from the environment that becomes material for future growth. So what was this question? How should India assimilate modern and foreign influences without losing itself in the process of learning from the West? And, And I'm reading the direct quote over here. Those who live most powerfully in themselves can also most largely use the word and all its material for the self and, it must be added, most successfully help the world and enrich it out of their own being. The man who most finds and lives from the inner self can most embrace the universal and become one with it. The Swarat, independent, self-possessed and self-ruler can most be the Samrat, possessor and shaper of the world in which he lives Can most two grow one with all in the Atman? Therefore, to live in oneself, determining one's self expression from one's own center of being in accordance with one's own law of being, Swadharma, is the first necessity. These are such powerful words. These are such amazing words written by Sri Aurobindo. And look, a lot of you who listen to this podcast, because I finally looked at the analytics are under the age of 35. From the age of 18 to 35. You know, good 60% plus of you are there. Many of you live outside India. Maybe in the West too. Do not fall for that trap of hating India or hating the West. Every culture has something beautiful to offer. And our great sages, they were very smart. They took everything everybody had to offer. In fact, I always say that मिठाई मिठाई so learn from Sri Aurobindo. Before we wrap today's discussion up, once again, I want to remind all of you, this is a noble cause. So please buy this book, contribute to the ashram. I will leave the link to buy this book in the description of the podcast go and follow Gotham and devdeep on twitter you can buy other books of Gotham too gautam uh, Gotham to kabi bolega nahi books ke bare mein iske mujhe bolna hai gautam ke lihe, gautam to kuch karta nahi in mein <laughs> but uh, also if you can please support the charvak podcast you can subscribe to the channel you can like the video you can support me in many other ways on patreon or youtube or the, through the merch or upi i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye